0: You're listening to the City Church podcast. Right now we're in a series based on questions you gave. This is raw, honest. Nothing's off limits. This is gloves off. All right, all right. You happy to be at church this morning? I hope so. Always like to take a minute just welcome our Middletown and Bridgeport locations. Can we say hello to Middletown and Bridgeport? Hi guys, we love you. Welcome to City Church. God bless you. We're in a teaching series. It's three weeks long where we took a bunch of questions from you all on Easter Sunday and tried to gather those questions into larger themes and answer the specific questions that you were asking. And so last week, if you were here, kind of one of the bigger questions that was asked was why does God allow suffering in the world? And if you missed that, that is an important uh, you know, teaching for our church and for who we are and for how we handle suffering as a church. And so I want to encourage you to go and check that out. If you didn't hear it, you can get it on ourcitychurch.org and, uh, and listen to it there or on the podcast. But today, we're, uh, we're gonna, we tried to clump together a ton of questions that we got on the topic of relationship and sexuality. And so we got questions like, you know, what is a godly relationship? How does marriage really work in God's eyes? What is dating? Supposed to look like? How do we raise godly kids? What about divorce? What about my boyfriend that I'm in love with? Can we sleep together? What about same sex attraction? What about unwanted singleness? On and on and on. All these different questions about sexuality. And so uh, I want to let you know a couple things. We as a church have talked a lot about the topic of sexuality because it's a topic that's pretty relevant for our culture today. And so I did a little math, and we're somewhere around 20 plus hours of teaching recorded on the topic of sexuality, all right? And so I just want to, we're not going to be able to cover everything today, obviously. We're going to do a bit of a a bit of a broader view of things, but, uh, but I want to just let you know about a couple of teaching series you can go back and review if you're interested. What is this church's perspective on these issues? We did a teaching series called Californication. That was a fun one. I don't know if anyone was here for that. We talked about sexual addiction and sexual pleasure and how those things operate and what uh, is God's heart on that. We did a series called Broken Home where we looked at what does family look like from God's perspective what does marriage look like and then we did a series called wingman just recently this past year where we talked about relationships and singleness and 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 being in a relationship and all those different things and so I encourage you if you have interest in this topic beyond what I discussed today uh, go back and review some of those spend the next you know five or seven days you know just watching videos that'd be fun right so today nobody said anything okay so today uh, I want to just talk about what is God's plan for sexuality in a broad scope, okay? What is God's plan for sexuality? And I want to say something at the very beginning to sort of disarm us a little bit and just be honest. I realize that today in Midstate Bridgeport, here in New Haven that there are going to be many people in the room that you are not going to agree with what we teach today as the biblical understanding of sexuality. And I want to just acknowledge that and say a couple things about that. First is that, uh, that I honor you and that we as a church honor you, okay? And that's very important because one of the things that we believe as a community and that I believe very deeply is that I don't need to agree with a person on any specific issue in order to honor them, care for them, and love them, all right? I don't need to do that because my honor for them is not stemming from my agreement with them. My honor for them is stemming from the truth that they were made in God's image. All right? And so I just want to be super clear about that. If you walk away and say, I don't believe anything that God just said, you still need to know that um, that, that doesn't make me not want to, you know, uh, care for you. That honestly, that I honor you regardless of whether you think I'm crazy or not right now. All right? So that's number one. And then number two, I'm also grateful that you're here. You might be trying to escape out the back right now, but I'm grateful that you're here, that you have the humility to hear what, uh, what we believe is a biblical understanding of sexuality and the, and the courage to really engage these issues that are challenging and that are very personal. Right? And so uh, we're going to dive into a passage of Scripture that just starts with controversy. And, uh, and we're going to read it today, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you have a Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and, uh, and turn to the person next to you and just tell them this is already awkward. Go ahead and tell them. This is, this is, this is already, it's already awkward. It's, it's already awkward in here. Here we go. All right. Verse 9, I'm going to read all the way down to verse 20. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually or immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves... Nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. That's a pretty controversial passage. but then he goes, "All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will be enslaved. I'll not be enslaved by anything. The food is meant for stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Uh, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Woo! It's going to get crazy today. All right, so if, uh, if you want to take notes, you can jot this down. title of today's sermon is A Good Story. A Good Story story, a good story. Would you pray with me? Let's open up our hearts to Jesus this morning. Jesus, thank you for the chance to study your scripture. Thank you for these, uh, these issues that are just culturally important and, uh, and oftentimes difficult. Father, I just pray that you give me a grace to communicate today. I pray that you strengthen me in every way and that your Holy Spirit would be among us and that, uh, that you would speak to each of us in a profound and personal way in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I always loved a good story. I remember as a kid that uh, I used to read Aesop's Fables. Anybody remember Aesop's Fables? Aesop? Okay. Nobody here in New Haven. All right. Yeah, I mean, you've heard of the tortoise and the hare, right? Everybody remember the, okay. Yeah, tortoise and the hare, you know that one? There's all kinds of different famous fables that Aesop, uh, you know, wrote. And this is, this is really ancient literature, but, uh, but it's still popular for kids today. And there's all these different stories that always have a meaning behind them, right? And so you have the story, like the, like the bunny and the, tor- the turtle, and there's a purpose behind that, a so it's slow and steady yeah, of course it does. And so there's all these different things that we learn from that. I found an interesting one that, uh, that was, uh, was kind of in relation to what I'd like to speak on today. It's called the ass and the grasshopper. All right. I don't know why that's funny. Why is that funny to you? What's up with that? One day, as an ass was walking in the pasture, he found some grasshoppers chirping merrily in the grassy corner of the field. He listened with a great deal of admiration to the grasshopper's song. It was such a joyful song that his pleasure, loving heart, was filled with a wish to sing as they did. What is it, he asked them very respectfully, that has given you such beautiful voices? Is there any special food you eat, or is it some divine nectar that, you, that makes you sing so wonderfully? Oh, why, yes, said the grasshoppers, who were very fond of a joke it is the dew that we drink try some and you'll see so thereafter the ass would eat nothing and drink nothing but dew naturally the poor foolish ass soon died isn't that a great story? it's a good one for kids, right? Yeah, I love that one. See, there, you know, the punchline on that one would be "Be yourself," right? Be yourself, you know. But it gives it even goes deeper than that. Aesop had a way of really going beyond just the kind of the surface and really getting down into the guts of uh, of human uh, relationships and truth. And so you could see that in this story, it's not just "Be yourself." the uh, the, the donkey made a fundamental mistake, right? He thought that uh, that fulfillment would come by pleasure. Obtained, okay, rather than fulfillment coming by design embraced. Just going deep on you. There you go. Boom, mic drop. There you go. So, so just what does that even mean? What does, that, what does it even mean? Pleasure obtained versus design? It, I, don't, I don't get that. What, what, what does that mean? I love a good story. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we see Paul trying to articulate to this early church in Corinth uh, the truths about sexuality. And if you know much about the ancient city of Corinth, which you may not, it was a Greek city that, uh, that was very famous for its arts, very famous for its wealth, and very famous for its... Sex. It was very famous for sexual exploits, experimentation, all different types of sexual experiments that that, uh, the Corinthian people were used to. And so they wrote Paul some type of a letter and asked him questions about sexuality. And he comes back with the letter that we've just read and uh, a portion of. And so in verse 13, he says something a little confusing since we're talking about sex, right? He says, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body's not meant for sex extra immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, you have to understand that in this day, this idea of saying foods for the stomach and stomach is for food, that was a common proverb of the day. What do I mean by that? It was like saying, well, it takes one to know one. You know that that phrase people use, right? Or any other common proverbial phrase in culture. So in the city of Corinth, this idea that food's for the stomach and stomach is for food was a common way of understanding sexuality. In other words, what they were saying is appetites are meant to be fulfilled. And if I have an appetite, it's because I am supposed to pursue its fulfillment. And so if sex is an appetite, then it's okay for me to fulfill it as long as I'm safe and responsible, right? And so that may sound like your your health teacher in high school, right? Or maybe your parents when you went off to college, depending on the type of home you grew up in. But this is a specific philosophy about sex. And I want to outline it like this. Philosophy number one, you can jot these down. Sex is an appetite to be satisfied. And this isn't just an ancient philosophy that has come and gone with the Corinthians. It's a philosophy that actually has probably never had more traction than today. People would say, listen, sex is an appetite to be satisfied. Therefore, sex is right as long as it's safe. Okay? And so this is a very, very common idea. You add to that idea... The theory that uh, human beings are really just a cosmic accident, that we've evolved from apes, and that there's really no reason why we have any moral compass beyond what we feel is appropriate. Therefore, if I have sexual appetites, it's fine to fulfill them. And so sex can be recreational, sex can be casual, friends with benefits is not a bad thing, and I can just move into these things and understand, listen, as long as it's safe, as long as I'm not intentionally hurting anyone, then these things are all fine. The trick, though, is that sexual appetites are not like any other appetite. Somebody say amen. It's true. I mean, when's the last time you knew someone who was up at 3 a.m. watching videos of other people eating cheeseburgers? Right? Probably don't know anybody doing that. Because the appetite for food doesn't drive people to do that. But I can tell you that about 63% of men who claim to love Christ are doing that on a regular basis when it comes to pornography... And so we understand that uh, that sexual appetites are not exactly the same as other appetites. The scripture says that the eyes of a man are never satisfied. That if I find, and this applies to a woman as well, if I find a person that I think is sexually appealing and I am intimate with that person, then it's not enough after a little while. Last night's high is old news. I need something fresh for tomorrow. And so there's always this sense with sexual appetite that I haven't quite gotten all that I need. And so in our culture, there's this Constant attitude of improving your sexual performance so that through some incredible sexual technique you will find ultimate satisfaction and so people are always thinking well if I just become a better lover I will maximize pleasure and the problem is as soon as you separate the pleasure from the purpose you introduce a third element pain And so all around us, we have a culture that has tried to extract from sexuality simply the pleasure and enjoy that pleasure without any consequences. And the reality is that if you're honest, if sexuality is just an appetite to be satisfied, then you become a slave to the appetite and a hardness in your heart begins to form until you don't know how to have real intimacy. I'm preaching pretty good, but you're not really clapping and stuff, but that's all right. So there's something inside of us that knows that there's more to intimacy and more to sexuality than just pleasure, okay? And so without God in the picture, humanity begins to develop a second philosophy, a second philosophy of what sexuality is meant for, okay? See, ever since you and I were born, we've been searching for our identity. There's something deep inside of us that knows that we don't know fully who we are. And because we don't know fully who we are, we're always trying to figure out who we are in respect to other people. And so maybe I identify myself by the clothes I wear, by the car I drive, or by the family I came from, or by the school I went to. Always trying to construct a version of my own identity. And so So what we find is that the intense feelings of romance and passion and sexual pleasure become an incredible filler to help me understand who I am. And so now sexuality is not just about pleasure. It's not just an appetite to be satisfied. It starts to help me answer the questions, am I important? Am I valuable? Am I unique? Who am I? And so culturally, we see that people turn to sexuality for a bigger cause, a bigger purpose. And this would be philosophy number two, that sex is an identity to be discovered. Sex is an identity to be discovered. I must pursue my sexual passions to such an extent that they will lead me to understand who I really am. This is a philosophy that many, many people adhere to in our culture today. So sex is right as long as there's love, right? Sex is right as long as there's love because that person completes me. Yeah? Because I don't want to lose you now. I'm looking right at the other half of me, right? If you know the song, the next, the next thing he says, the vacancy tea that, that in my heart is the space that now you hold. What's he saying there? What's JT getting at? Hold on a second. I don't want to lose you now because I'm looking right at the other half of me. The vacancy that sat in my heart is a space that now you hold. You complete me. Right? You, you are, it's an identity that I discover through our intimacy. I understand who I am because I know who I am in you or through a relationship with you. And so here is the idea behind this is that I understand that sexuality is bigger than just pleasure. Therefore, I embrace romance to find my true love. And in that discovery of a partner and a lover, I find completion in who I am. And so there there's fragments of truth in both of these things. But when you mix these two ideologies together, you get this sex is an appetite to be satisfied and sex is an identity to be discovered and you blend them together and you have basically now described current American sex culture. This is the way that whether you realize it or not, the vast majority of people are viewing the concept of sex around us. And so we're viewing sex through this lens. So on the one hand, we as a culture are very sexually independent, right? Sex can be casual, it can be purely physical, no strings attached, friends with benefits. But on the other hand, sex can be very, very co-dependent because I'm finding my identity through my partner. I'm lost without you and I'm looking right at the other half of me and, and, and there's something so sacred in that. And so this combination creates all types of wild experiences within our society. Things like sexual addiction, things like this elevation of my true love, things like a fragile identity, and ultimately this longing for more. When I was 18 years old, some of you guys know this, I started traveling with a a Christian music group, a band that we didn't really expect for much to happen, but uh, it it really began to grow. And we started getting invitations all over the place and started playing music in different places across the Northeast and then across the country. And and so we had to buy a trailer to hold our equipment. And so we bought this little 5x8 trailer, and I didn't know anything about trailers. And I think it had a maximum weight capacity of probably about 1,000 pounds. And I think we put in that thing 5,000 pounds. I mean, I'm not kidding. We just abused that trailer, and pretty soon everything about the trailer was falling apart. So we bought a bigger trailer, and this trailer had a weight capacity of about 2,500 pounds, and we put in it 7,000 pounds, right? And so we packed this thing. It was a lot bigger, and so we packed it so tight that one day we're driving down the road. I'll never forget. And we look at the wheels, and they're like, and and we get underneath the trailer, and we say, what is going on? Sure enough, the axle was bent by the weight that we put in it. And we thought, well, that's ridiculous. How'd this axle bend? What a stupid trailer. What will we do? We will buy another trailer and ignore the specifications of it. And that's exactly what we did. We bought a third trailer. And this third trailer had about a 3,000 pound weight limit. We put about 8,000 pounds in it. And it was pretty soon, I can't, I'll never forget, in New Jersey, we're doing an event in New Jersey and we hear behind us. And we look out and the frame itself has snapped and is now dragging on the ground. And so what are we going to do with our trailer abusing ways? Are we going to read the specifications? Are we going to consider the original design? Of course not. Why would I do that? Instead, I bought a 27 foot long trailer that had a 5,000 pound weight limit. I put 11,000 pounds in it. That's what I did. I'm not kidding. A brilliant man that I am. And so there's my fourth trailer. And I've, I'm abusing this one. And I remember we're on a, a two-week tour all through the country. And the guy was with us. Rob, if you ever see this video, I love you. His name's Rob Rob was I, I, And he was driving our truck for most of the time. And he's driving this truck. And he keeps b- popping tires because we're thousands of pounds overweight. And so over the course of this one tour, we popped five tires. Five tires. I mean, we were keeping Walmart in business, buying tires as fast as we could. And so we had three or four spares. We were popping so many tires. And guess what we did? We just ragged on Rob. We said, we called him, we called him Rob La Tire Pop. We called him, we called him Rumble Strip Rob because he would hit the Rumble Strip. And, it, and we just say, Rob, man, come on, get your act together. Stay off those Rumble Strips. You're killing us, bro. When all along, it was really all our fault. Never occurred to me to stop and ask, what is the philosophy ...that is informing my decisions about trailers. And it's interesting to me that right now here in the room... ...you're here, you've been divorced twice... You're here today and you're going from relationship to relationship to relationship. You're here today and you're struggling every single day, every single week with sexual addiction and can't seem to break it. You're here today and you're virgin but you don't want to be and you're just trying to discover yourself through experimentation. You're here today and you're living with somebody and you're thinking that you're going to find yourself through that and all these different circumstances of life. I wonder if you've ever stopped and really taken the time to consider the philosophy that's informing your concepts of sexuality? Have you developed them just from a television show? Have you developed them from your friends around you or from your parents? Where did you construct your view philosophically about what is sex? Are you just following what your heart tells you to do? Are you just following what the people around you tell you to do? See, what I'm saying is that deep down, I always knew that I wasn't really being responsible with my trailer choices. But for some reason, I don't even know why, I felt like the rules didn't apply to me. I felt, like the rule, I felt like I could just bend the rules until I bent the axle. And some of you, you're going from trailer to trailer to trailer to trailer. And you're wondering, why is this consistently causing... I'll just get another one. I'll just, I'll just, get, an, I'll just get a bigger one. I'll just get a nicer looking one. The other thing, you know, that made me never consider the purchase of an appropriate weighted trailer... Was the cost. I was afraid of the cost. They cost too much. And I felt like I couldn't afford that type of an investment. Turn person makes you say, dang, that's deep. That's deep. See what he says in verse 13 here? He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Wow, what does that mean? First, what he's describing there is that there is a particular intention behind sexuality. It's not meant for sexual immorality. In other words, it is meant for something else, okay? And so what does that even mean? What is it meant for? Well... What we see in creation is God has made stars and he's made trees and he's made dogs and he's made mountains. He's made all these things physically but then he also made invisible systems. Things you and I can't see but that operate behind the scenes. Things like sowing and reaping. Things like gravity. And some of them are very obvious but others of them are a little less obvious. And what he's saying here is that when God created sexuality he did it with a very particular framework or pattern in mind. And he says it's not meant for sexual immorality. Now that word sexual immorality is translated in a number of different things in the scriptures, but fundamentally, as you dig into the Greek, it's a pretty simple word. It literally just means a marriage relationship, anything outside of that marriage covenant would be considered sexual immorality. And so he's saying that, you know, I've designed a man and female to give themselves to each other. And this is what intimacy looks like between two individuals. And he says, the body was not meant for sexual immorality. There's a pattern here. Okay, then verse 14, take a look at what he says next. It gets even more intense. He says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So there's a resurrection piece to this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, I mean, wh- who's talking about a prostitute, Paul? Like what's going on here? And wh- where are you going with this? He says, or do you, verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now he's speaking about sexual exploits outside of the relationship of marriage. And so he's saying that something happens here. There's a connection, okay? And he starts with this phrase, do you not know? Now, this is important because three times in this little passage that we've read, Paul says, do you not know? Do you know why I said that? Because he was concerned that you didn't know. He was concerned that people would live their lives unaware of this, that it was easy to just adopt the cultural norms for sexuality and not realize that those are in fact the things informing your ways of thinking, that you've adopted ways of thinking that are contrary to God's original pattern because they came naturally to you. And due to the sin inside our hearts, those natural inclinations seem like they're true. And in seeming like they're true, if no one tells you that there's something deeper going on, it's possible to live unaware. And so he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of christ and that you are one flesh with him now if you know the scriptures much you know that he's quoting a passage from genesis chapter 2 i'm going to look at it today genesis chapter 2 you probably heard this one if you've ever uh, been to a wedding or in, in a church service it's often quoted it says there, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother stay with me this morning and hold fast to his wife and they shall become what's the next little phrase one flesh okay and so he's referring to an ancient pattern here okay an ancient pattern by which a man who carries a seed we'll do the G version today and a woman who has an oven in her tummy right come together okay come together the man leaves his home commits his life to one and then they are intimate physically and it results in pleasure it results in offspring but it also results in a sacred bond of the soul this phrase one flesh we think of it physically and we say okay okay I get that Justin I know the biology here and I know it's one flesh you know like we don't need to draw a picture right we all get this right and so I understand the one flesh idea but but what Paul would say is no no actually you don't because one flesh is really not about physical union it's much deeper than that if you dive into the original Hebrew concept of one flesh you realize that it fundamentally means the mingling of souls it means the whole life being bonded together Scientists have in fact found that this is true. That when an individual is sexually intimate with another person, there is a hormone released in the brain known as oxytocin that sexually binds people mentally and emotionally together. It's like a cement that draws people together, not just physically, but intellectually, mentally, emotionally. I am bound to this other person. And so this bond called sex is supposed to be something, yes, that is physical, but that also is mental and social and financial phy- financial. In other words, in every way, when a man and a woman are intimate, they are to be tied one to another. And this is why he says it's so crucial that this particular Bond is kept sacred between a person you commit your life to because if you just give it to everyone, you are now tearing aspects of your heart off thinking that you can isolate the physical pleasure or discover your identity through this experience, not realizing that there's something much deeper going on here. So Paul's argument, thank you one person that agreed. All right, I told you some people aren't gonna agree. Paul's argument here is that this bond is not just for pleasure or for offspring. And I want to look at, probably for me, one of the most profound verses in the entire New Testament. It's verse 17. He drops it right in the middle of this discussion about sex. Take a look at it with me. Verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Whoa, whoa. Uh, what, what, what do you mean, Paul? For, hold on a second. And what does that have to do with sex, Paul? Like, why are we in the middle of a sexual discussion and you're talking about being joined? What do you, what do you mean? Here's what he means. What he's saying is that Genesis 2.24, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What he's saying in Genesis 2.24 is that that is fundamentally not the marriage story, though we hear it at every wedding and celebration of marriage. Fundamentally, that is the gospel story that the story goes a whole lot deeper... Than you and your wife. See, the son left his home in heaven and he walked away from his father to find his bride, the church, and he paid the highest price to ransom and redeem her, and then he made a permanent union with her to such an extent that both bride and groom now share everything and body, soul, spirit, mental, emotional, financial financial everything that belongs to the groom christ jesus belongs to the bride his church and everything that belongs to the bride his church belongs to christ he took all of my sin on the cross i took all of his righteousness before the father there's been a perfect exchange one to another because we've been bonded in a bond that is unbreakable and eternal you become one spirit with god himself and are given permanent access into the trinity this is where he's going. What? He's saying that this is far deeper than just a man and a woman. It's far deeper than sexual pleasure. Sex can't be reduced just to pleasure. It can't be a source of identity. It's a terrible source of identity because at its root, sex is a story. You remember Aesop, right? Remember his fables? Every fable had a lesson, right? Right? And what we see here is that Paul is trying to teach the Corinthians that you can't just do whatever you want sexually because you've got to understand that there's a far deeper thing going on here. When God put a man and a woman in a garden, he created an invisible pattern for sexuality so that human sexuality became a living parable of our relationship with God. It's a story that illustrates a greater truth. See, sex is God's parable. To call you to intimacy with him. Sex is God's parable to call you into a deeper intimacy with himself. In other words, he's saying, I've created a living physical story known as marriage. And that living physical story is a picture of a much deeper and eternal story. A deep and eternal story of human beings being united to their creator for eternity in a bond much like marriage but for all time and eternal. And I am wooing you through your understanding of sexuality to say that intimacy, true intimacy, is really only with the Father in heaven. That true fulfillment is really only with God. That true love is really really discovered in all of the great blessings of this life in relationship point back to him and to who he is and who he wants to be in your life see you'll never satisfy your appetite for sexual pleasure never no matter how many partners you have no matter how much you are able to isolate the pleasure of sex there'll always be a longing for more and you'll never be able to understand your identity that craving for identity through a sexual partner never Because those things, the great appetite of the soul was meant to be only satisfied by God and the great craving for identity was meant only to be satisfied by God. Now, when sexuality is expressed in the context of the pattern in which God created it, in a marriage, it's an incredible, joy-filled, free thing that is actually a beautiful expression of worship to God. But when it's expressed outside of those bounds, God says, beware. Beware. I love you. And no matter how honest it feels no matter how right it feels don't trust your own heart because it's going to produce pain if you're here today and you're single it's important for you to understand this you're not incomplete because you're not having sex okay? You're not incomplete. See, the culture would try to tell you, if you're single, you have to be hooking up with people all the time to satisfy your sexual urges, and no, 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 no. In fact, what the scripture says is that singleness is just as honorable, just as holy, and just as beautiful as marriage, because in singleness I dedicate my body to God and I display the sufficiency of Christ alone through intimacy with Him, saying I don't have to pursue a hundred partners because I have Christ and my commitment to Christ proves His glory in my life and so singleness is a sacred position in fact the man writing this was in fact single here he is elevating marriage to the point of a beautiful parable that displays God's glory and at the same time saying singleness is equally sacred if you're married here today your spouse is not going to complete you so stop thinking that they're going to only Jesus can so display oh my heart burns for this display the depth of Christ's love By being devoted to your spouse, even if they get chunky. Even if their hair falls out. Even if they smell funny or they lose their job or they get sick or they're incredibly annoying at times. Be devoted. Somebody said amen, you're going to pay for that one later. Uh, (laughs) Be devoted to your spouse because the devotion that you have to your spouse is bigger than just your own personal pleasure, satisfaction, or realization of self. Your devotion to your spouse is a story... To all that see you of the glory of Christ and the depth of his love. And so live for something bigger than what you want today. It's important to understand, this is crucial. That sin is going to inspire inside my heart and your heart. A thousand passions outside this pattern. If you say, well Justin, why do I feel this way? Why do I have this passion for this? Why do I desire that? Don't be surprised by that, okay? Don't be shocked and surprised that you have sexual passions that are outside the pattern. That's what sin does in our heart. In fact, I don't know if I've ever met anyone that does not have sexual passions outside of the pattern that God has displayed. This pattern seems incredibly narrow, and the reality is that no human being can actually live faithful to it outside of the supernatural empowering grace of God. But I can tell you this, that it's worth it, that it's true, and that if you would trust in the pattern that Christ has displayed, it will produce more joy, more hope, more fruitfulness and more life in the long run than any other life system. It will. So what do I do when I have passions that are outside the pattern? He tells us in verse 18, check it, take a look at it. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. That's an interesting phrase because you think to yourself, well, hold on, Paul. Like, what about if somebody overdoses on drugs? That that hurts their body. Or if they kill themselves. Or what about if someone, you know, I don't know, does something else that hurts their body? Uh, Isn't that against your body? And certainly it is. But he's saying here that this idea of sexuality goes much deeper because you are dishonoring the very structure that God has used to display the truth of the gospel in this world physically. And so he's saying, no, 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 this is a much deeper thing. And then he gives us one final motivation, and this one's important, a final motivation to embrace the pattern of the parable. Look at verse 19 and 20. He says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You are not your own. Oh, hold on a second. I'm not my own. Don't you know I'm American? Land of the free. I am my own. But Jesus says, no, you're not. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For anyone who wishes to save his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, he's saying, if you want to come after me, I demand exclusivity. I demand that I am your Lord. I demand that I am the center of your heart and the focus of your life. And you can't have me as a peripheral idea. You can't have me as a side religion. If you want to know Christ, you must make him central. Why? Because every good marriage requires exclusive intimacy, doesn't it? Every good marriage requires exclusive intimacy. There's no other way to make it work because exclusive intimacy demands Or requires the loss of my independence. If I want true intimacy. If I want devoted intimacy. Both in the sexual sphere. And in the faith sphere before God. If I want to have a real relationship with God. And if I want to have a real relationship in a marriage. It requires that I devote myself fully. And therefore sacrifice my own personal independence. In other words, what you're saying is, I'm not chasing after other lovers. I'm not pursuing other loves. Yeah, my heart may feel this or may feel that, but I'm devoting myself to you and you only. It's the only way sex can work. It's the only way sex can work. It's whole life bonding. It's mingling of souls. And he's saying, if you would devote yourself fully to one partner, then it's a beautiful gift. But if you try to change the pattern... It's gonna be pain. And so, Paul's encouragement here is not one of condemnation. He was dealing with a culture that thought he was crazy, much like I'm dealing with a culture today that thinks this is crazy. It wasn't one of condemnation for your past sin, it wasn't one of condemnation for your impulses and desires that are far from this pattern. No, 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 no. We all have those. It was one of invitation find something bigger, find something greater. Find who you are. It's the only way for sex to work. It's the only way for the gospel to work. And Jesus understood that. Jesus understood that losing your independence was the only way for the gospel to work. That's why he lost his independence. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I wonder... How long was Jesus a man? 33 years? That's not what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches that Jesus became a man 2,000 years ago and he will forever, eternally, still be a man. That when God decided to embrace humanity through the incarnation, it was not a 33-year commitment to the human race. It was a permanent commitment. Bond to humanity that for all time he will be fully God and fully man in other words he was saying I am losing my independence from a crooked broken human race by becoming a man and tying my destiny to their destiny I will forever be a man I will forever be human and I lose my independence because I am desiring exclusive intimacy with my people I wonder, I wonder if um, the root of your problems are an unwillingness to surrender. I wonder if you get down to it. That's the root of the problem. Just stay on your feet with me this morning, every location. Let's just take a moment. Open up our hearts to God. I want to challenge you today to consider taking a step of faith this morning. You know, culturally, it's much easier to create my own independent views of sexuality. That's much more convenient. It's 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 much more comfortable. But the challenge of coming to Christ is saying, God, this doesn't feel natural and it doesn't feel advantageous. It may not even feel like me. But I'm gonna surrender my independent view. I'm going to surrender my natural passion. I'm going to surrender the shame of my past. I'm going to surrender the idol of a partner. And I'm going to look to you, Jesus. This morning, Jesus invites us, genuinely invites us, to pleasure that's greater than sexuality. Jesus invites us to identity that's higher than sexuality. And sexuality as a gift must be celebrated, but it can never be the source. Because Christ is saying, no, no, see, it's a picture. It's a parable. And it's all along pointing to an invitation to come close to me. Would you close your eyes this morning and just take this moment to decide, you know, God, I want you to be the only lover in my heart. And out of my devotion to you, I can love others. But Jesus, be my source. Be my center. Be enough. If I'm in a challenging marriage, you're my source. If I'm single and I don't want to be, you're my source. If I've been through all types of different sexual partners and I'm still empty, God, I turn to you as my source right now. If I'm tempted and dabbling, looking at a culture that glorifies sex as God, I look to you as my source. If I'm addicted, enslaved, can't seem to break patterns of destruction sexually in my own life, I turn to you as my source. If I'm confused about who I am, unclear about my identity, I turn to you as my source. Holy Spirit, would you come? And as I surrender to you today, would you meet me? And would you teach me the heart of real pleasure and the heart of real identity? In Jesus' name, let's sing.